Good morning. Hey, just a question because I'm curious. Um, how many of you have never before, I think I know the answer to this, but I just want to get some empirical data here, uh, been a part of a church um, or perhaps a Bible study, uh, never before sat through in a complete study or complete preaching series on Revelation? How many have never done that? It's about half, maybe? Okay. Just curious, just curious. Neither have I. Um, we're on this journey together. So now that uh, John, the author of Revelation, has introduced his letter to the seven churches, and he has set the stage for us with uh, his vision of Jesus in chapter 1, he begins chapter 2 by addressing the first of those seven churches, and that is the church in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the largest city in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, with an estimated population of about 200,000, a mix of Greeks and Romans and Jews, as well as people from Egypt and Rhodes and Galatia and Lydia and Mycenae. Ephesus was the center of Roman administration in Asia, its capital city. It was a hub for seaborne uh, commerce with access to inland markets. They were pretty well off. Religiously, It was a blend of the worship of Greek and Egyptian deities, along with a few others. And one of the uh, most important religions of the day, if we can call it that, for Ephesus and for other cities in the Roman Empire was what was known as the imperial cult. Now, I know that sounds like it comes from Star Wars, but it doesn't. And also, the word cult um, does not have the meaning that most of us might hear when we hear that word today. Cult, in in academic circles, cult is, uh, refers to a system of worship or a system of veneration toward a particular figure or object. So the imperial cult was the worship of emperors and their families, sometimes present but often past. It was the worship of emperors and their families, past and sometimes present. It began with the death of Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. when the Roman Senate declared him to be divine And then it continued from there. And the imperial cult is in full force and very influential in the city of Ephesus. For these early Christians then, if you can imagine this, life in Ephesus included cultural pressure to accommodate their lives, their religious practices to pagan religious practices, including the worship of the emperor. To fit in and to stay in relationship with their non-Christian family, friends, and co-workers, they often felt the pressure to do this, to give in on certain things. We often refer to each of these uh, addresses to the seven churches as letters to the seven churches, but in reality, all of Revelation is one letter to all seven churches. Each of these passages that address individual churches might better be referred to as prophetic words or prophetic statements that are directed to each of the individual churches. But all of the churches would have heard each of these addresses. Revelation would have taken, been taken as a whole document from church to church. They would have heard it all. <clears throat> each prophetic word follows the same basic pattern with a couple of variations here and there. So one of the first things to notice about each of these prophetic words, it begins with the address, to the angel of the church in the city, whichever one we're dealing with, write these things. And each of them contains um, pretty much an identical line at or near the end of the prophetic word. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Jesus' way of saying that these words can apply 
to churches and individuals throughout history. It can apply to churches and individuals throughout history. Put another way, as we read what the Spirit says to the churches, if the prophetic shoe fits, wear it. If it speaks to you about some aspect of your life or your faith or your relationships, put it on. See what Jesus has to say to you in the midst of it. There are five mostly consistent elements in the structure of these seven prophetic words. I'm, gonna, I'm borrowing these elements, or the way they're stated at least, from Michael Gorman's book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, with a very long subtitle of Uncivil Worship and Witness Following the Lamb into the New Creation. These elements are Christ, commendation, condemnation, challenge, and the conqueror's promise. Christ, commendation, condemnation, challenge, and the conqueror's promise. We're going to unpack them as we walk through them. Then from week to week, this week and six weeks following, as we make our way through each of these prophetic words to the seven churches, we'll use these five elements to tell you where we are in that particular passage. These are going to serve as an outline for us. Chapter 2, Revelation, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Right off the bat, chapter 2, verse 1, we encounter the first element, Christ. That is, this is where Christ, that Jesus Christ, identifies himself using some phrase most of which we will, as we go through the letters, or excuse me, the prophetic words, as we go through them, you, we will see that these are lines that have already been attributed to Jesus by Jesus himself or by John in, in the first chapter of the book, most of them. He identifies himself using phrases from chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. The seven stars in his right hand are the angels who bring the prophetic word to each of the seven churches, and the lampstands are the churches. Jesus told us this in chapter 1, verse 20. And then, as we learned last week, under the Emperor Domitian's reign, there was a coin minted. And on one side, it has a, uh, a, an imprint of his face, his head. On the other side is an imprint of his deceased infant son sitting on the earth, reaching his hand out to seven stars. The image was meant to show the emperor's son as divine, which is, again, part of the imperial cult. By referring to himself as the one who holds the seven stars, Jesus is, in addition to talking about them as, the, as, the, as uh, the angels, Jesus is also stealing thunder from the emperor. Jesus is the one true son of the one true God, not the emperor or his family. Whatever the emperor or members of the imperial cult may do to harm these followers of Jesus, one day they will answer to Christ who holds the seven stars. Verse 2. <clears throat> I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for a name and have not grown weary. Second element, commendation. Jesus sees how hard they have worked, how faithful they have been. When false prophets pretending to be apostles have tried to weasel their way into this community, these Christians in the city of Ephesus have tested them, have tested their words, found them to be false, and denied them any voice. They've also not tolerated wicked people, Jesus says. Now I want you to hold on to that. We're going to come back to it in verse 4. 
When Jesus mentions these false prophets, he may be referring to, in part, to a group of people he mentions later on in the passage in verse 6, where he breaks the pattern a bit and comes back to a part of the commendation. Verse 6 of Revelation 2, But you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who are the Nicolaitans, and what practices of theirs does Jesus hate? Now, these are strong words, after all. Uh, I, I mean, if, if Jesus hates these practices, we should not do whatever it was they did. We should follow the advice of Dwight Schrute, who once said, whenever I'm about to do something, I think, would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. <laughs> I'm three for three. Whenever I'm about to do something, if an idiot's going to do it, I don't do it. I know Megan liked that. She liked that, yeah. <clears throat> the same is true of the Nicolaitans. If they do something, we should not do that thing. We'll get him off the screen. He's distracting. Well, we don't know for certain what these Nicolaitans were doing, who they were, but more and more scholars believe that the practice that Jesus, the practices that Jesus hates, are all about eating meat that was sacrificed to idols in pagan worship. In the book of Acts, chapter 6, in the city of Antioch, Gentiles were coming to faith, but they were not keeping the Jewish law. This became quite the controversy for the early church. What, what were they to do? The, the church was changing and, and things were getting complicated. Gentiles do not behave like Jewish people when it comes to the law of Moses. Some of these Jewish Christians were thinking to themselves, likely, there goes the neighborhood. These Gentiles don't do it the way we did it. So leaders of the church got together and came up with a compromise. They didn't want to dissuade these Gentiles from coming to the faith in Christ, so they pared everything down to two requirements, only two. Avoid sexual immorality and stop eating food sacrificed to idols. <clears throat> now, if you've been around a while in the church or in Bible studies, you may know <clears throat> that the, the New Testament sometimes has different opinions on this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul speaks to the same issue. And there he gives permission for Gentile Christians to eat food sacrificed to idols as long as it doesn't cause another sister or brother in Christ to stumble in their faith. In that case, <clears throat> out of love for one another, also a key part of this section, out of love for one another, don't eat meat at all. In Paul's situation, he reasoned that this was the best approach to deal with this issue. In the city of Ephesus, in the book of Revelation, however, we're dealing with a different time, possibly as many as 30 years later after what Paul wrote. Things have changed. Things have gotten more dangerous to be a Christian. So Jesus says here in, in this section, not here. Given the tremendous pressure and the temptation to compromise your faith, here and now you need to stop eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. The group of people known as the Nicolaitans may have been named after someone named Nicholas, which means, the name Nicholas means he conquers people. Sorry about that. <clears throat> He's not there, yeah. He conquers people. 
It may be a symbolic name. Sometimes they'll do that. They'll use symbolic names. They do later, or John does later, Jesus does later with Jezebel and Balaam. Or it may be that these people followed somebody named Nicholas, the teaching of someone named Nicholas, and he conquered them. Whatever the case, in the late first century under Roman Empire, the the practices of the Nicolaitans were idolatrous and not to be tolerated among the churches in Asia Minor. So these are the things the church in Ephesus have done well. They have silenced false prophets. They do not eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. They have persevered. But where have they not done so well? Where does Jesus intend to challenge them? Glad you asked. Verse 4. Yet I hold this against you, Jesus said. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Now we enter condemnation. The condemnation part of this prophetic word. There's, there's, there's something that Jesus has against them. They have forsaken the love they had at first. Now, when Jesus says, you have forsaken the love you had at first, there's some ambiguity in what this love is. Some, usually older translations, will say, your first love, which sounds like a person. Say Jesus. And that is, early in my faith, what I thought was being talked about. You have forsaken Jesus. You have forsaken your love for Jesus. But more and more translations are actually going with the love you had at first, or the love you had at the beginning. That being the case, several scholars that I have consulted have convinced me that what Jesus is talking about is not that they've forsaken their love of him, but something else. Besides, if, if it referred to Jesus, why wouldn't Jesus just say, hey, you don't love me anymore? He just says, you've forsaken what you loved at first, or the love you had at first. To say that they have forsaken the love they had at first likely means that they don't love one another as they did when they were younger in the faith and when all this was new. You don't have to agree with me on this, but hear me out. To say that they have forsaken the love they had at first referred to the love they had for one another. Given how much Jesus celebrates what these early Christians are doing, how faithfully they are persevering, it does not appear that they have forsaken their love for Jesus at all. Rather, what they have lost is their ability to truly love one another. They're doing all the right things, but maybe not in the right way. After all, coming back to what we saw earlier, they do not tolerate wicked people or false prophets or the practices of the Nicolaitans. False prophets and the Nicolaitans were insider groups. They were insider groups. They were a part of the church. They were divisive and they were errant, but they were a part of the church. They identified as Christians. Maybe as these Ephesians have fought to maintain doctrinal purity and to protect themselves from false teaching, they have lost their ability to love one another like they used to. Maybe in their zeal to deal ruthlessly with sin and wicked people, they've forgotten how to love. In the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 15, where he is potentially addressing the same group of people many years earlier, he exhorts them to speak the truth in love to one another. Maybe in their zeal to protect the church, these Christians in Revelation 2 have spoken the truth, but they have not spoken the truth in love to one another. 
They would rather be right than enjoy loving relationships with their sisters and brothers. Might this be a word for the American church today? Might we be guilty of zealously protecting our doctrinal purity or, let's be honest, our, politi- our political partisanship? All at the expense of what Jesus says was the greatest commandment in all of Scripture. Maybe we too have forsaken the love that we had at first and we need to get it back. We need to renounce the idols that we have made of political parties and candidates. And we need to love one another. Never get an amen when you say things like that. Verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Verse 5 takes us into the fourth section of Jesus' Jesus' word to the church, challenge. An exhortation or a warning of some kind. And the exhortation is that these Ephesians need to repent and do the things they did at first. And the way to learn to love is to do loving things. Even if you don't feel it. The way to learn to love is to do loving things. We, we can't make ourselves feel affection and warmth for another person, but we can choose to do loving things for another person. This is why we often say that if there's someone that you're having difficulty truly loving, you should start by praying for them. If you pray for that person, it has the power to transform you in the way you feel toward them. The same can be said of doing good and kind deeds for one another and for our neighbors. They train us to love. They make of us more loving people. Many of us use the Lexio 365 app as a part of our prayer and devotional lives. It's a 10-minute time of listening and praying through a passage of Scripture in the morning. There's also an evening exercise as well, but I usually fall asleep in the middle of that one. And at the end of the morning session, we are led in this prayer. Father, help me to live this day to the full, being true to you in every way. Jesus, help me to give myself away to others, being kind to everyone I meet. Spirit, help me to love the lost, proclaiming Christ in all I do and say. That prayer is taken and adapted from what was known as the Honorable Order of the Mustard Seed, begun by Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf in eastern Germany in 1716. The main components of their rule of life were these to be true to Christ, to be kind to all people, to take the gospel to the nations. And it's that middle one that we're after this morning, to be kind to all people. For as we practice kindness towards one another and all people, we recover the love we had at first. The warning in verse 5 is that if the Ephesians do not repent... If they do not learn to love one another as they did at the beginning, Jesus says, he will come to them and he will remove their lampstand from its place. And that just seems a bit harsh to me. What does it mean? It means that in some way their status will be revoked by Jesus. That doesn't mean they will be closed down. Churches in that day didn't have buildings or constitutions or bylaws or projected budgets. This is not Jesus saying he will close them down if they don't love one another. They may well continue to meet. But they will no longer be who they once were or who they think they are. Something will be lost 
if they do not learn to love one another. Lampstands give light. After all, they give light. That's what they do. We think back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus taught us that we are the light of the world, and we are to let our light shine. To remove the lampstand from the church in Ephesus, or in any church, is to acknowledge that their failure to love one another and others would cause their light to dim. And if they are not giving off the light of Christ, they no longer need a lampstand. And Jesus will remove it from their midst. They will become a mere club rather than the light of the world. It's a severe warning. And it is given not because of doctrinal error, not because of gross immorality or sin. The warning is given because they no longer love one another as they did at first. Love no longer characterizes their community. And love for one another is the key element in our witness to the world. Jesus says this in John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He says it three times in one verse. Love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And if we don't love one another, people will not know that we are Christ's disciples. We will not be the light of the world. Okay, enough bad news. What will happen to them if they do repent and learn to love one another again? Verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This takes us to the fifth and final element in each of these prophetic words to the churches. The conqueror's promise. The conqueror's promise. In fact, more literally, verse 7 says, to the one who conquers. This takes us right back to those pesky Nicolaitans. Once again, their name comes from Nicholas, which means he conquers people. And Jesus creates a wordplay for us here. Jesus and John create a wordplay that we miss in English. The Christians in Ephesus are not to conquer people. They are to conquer their failure to love one another. The Christians in Ephesus are not to conquer people. They are to conquer their failure to love. As we're going to see later in the book of Revelation, we are called to conquer in the same way that Jesus conquered, by giving ourselves, giving of ourselves freely and fully. Jesus conquered death by death, we sometimes say and sing. We, we conquer by laying down our lives for Christ, by laying down our lives for one another, and by laying down our lives for the world. When we do that, Jesus says, we get to eat of the fruit of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. The very thing the first humans were forbidden to do because of their disobedience. And once again, what we see here early in Revelation comes back to us in grand form in the last chapter of the book. Spoilers. In Revelation 21, John has a vision of a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. After an elaborate description of what that's going to look like, he has shown another vision within a vision in chapter 22, verses 1 to 3. Then the angel showed me the river of 
the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, the New Jerusalem. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The Garden of Eden is restored. It is restored in the New Jerusalem. And we, the nations, and all peoples of the earth can now eat from the fruit of the tree of life. A tree now strangely stands on both sides of the river. And by doing so, we are healed. At the front end of our Bibles, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Relationships were fractured. The relationship between Adam and Eve, human being and human being, the relationship between humankind and creation, the relationship, of course, between humanity and God. And so they were exiled from the Garden of Eden, and they were no longer allowed to eat of the fruit from the tree of life. Furthermore, God cursed the serpent, God cursed the ground, and life outside the fellowship with God became much more difficult. But once we get to the last chapter, everything is taken back to the way it was at the beginning. No longer will there be any curse. Curses of Genesis 3, in other words, disappear. These words to the church in Ephesus are, in a sense, applicable to any church and to any individual at any time. What might they say to us today? To us as a congregation? To us as individual followers of Jesus? What do they ask of us? Toward whom, among sisters and brothers in Christ, toward whom have we been unloving or unkind? Where have we become complacent in our love? Where have we or do we currently value being right about things, doctrine, politics, biblical interpretation, at the expense of healthy, loving relationships? Let us keep these questions in mind as we prepare to take part in the sacrament of Holy Communion, and let us take these questions into the, the day and the week ahead. Toward whom, among sisters and brothers in Christ, have we been unloving or unkind? Where have we become complacent in our love? Where have we or do we currently value being right about things at the expense of healthy, loving relationships? These questions are also in the Bible app. Whoever has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? God, we give you thanks this day for what your spirit has said to the churches, to the church in Ephesus, and through them to all of us. We ask your blessing on us as we sit with these words. Lord, would you speak your truth to us? Would you convict us where um, we are not as loving as we could or should be, where we have failed? to love, in particular, one another as sisters and brothers in Christ, whether that be sisters and brothers that are in this room or part of this congregation or sisters and brothers afar, public figures, people on TV, people in podcasts. Would you show us, God, how we can become more loving? And would you make of us, this congregation, a people who love, 
who return more and more to the love that we had at first and truly know how to love one another and bear witness to your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.